What must you do to inherit an eternal kind of life, an abundant life? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This is how the scholar answered the question and what Jesus affirmed. These two things together, they are the essential path to life. But that's a lot to bite off all at once, isn't it? So a question of clarification was needed, a question I think that most of us ask at some point along the way. Yeah, but Jesus, there is so much need out there. So who is my neighbor? Who is it that I am supposed to go and love in order to inherit life and life abundant? What must I do? Who is my neighbor? That's the question we sometimes need help with, isn't it? And Jesus, of course, tells the story of the man beat up by the side of the road, but in the end, he changes the question. Did you notice that? Who was a neighbor to the man in the ditch? That's the question Jesus wants us to ask, not who is my neighbor or who is that Levite's neighbor or who was the priest's neighbor, not even who is the Samaritan's neighbor. The question is being asked from a very different perspective. Those questions were all asked from the perspective of people walking down the road, still standing on their own two feet. But Jesus changes the viewpoint. Instead of inviting us to look through the eyes of the Levite or the priest or the Samaritan or ourselves, he puts us down in the ditch looking up with the man who has been beaten and left for dead. Who was a neighbor from his perspective? Who was a neighbor to him? That's the question Jesus wants to ask. Chad is 47 years old. And he lives in a small town in northern Missouri named after his great-grandpa. When he was a kid, his dad would always point out that plaque in the park and the center of their town with the family's name. And it, it always made Chad feel like his family was a part of something important, that he himself was a part of something important. But things started to change when Chad was in high school and the car factory that employed so much of their community shut down and moved south of the border to another country. Luckily, his dad didn't work for the car factory. No, his dad was a banker. They would be okay. In a few years, our town will bounce back, his dad always told him. But in a few years, it really wasn't looking that way. In a few years... Some of the shops on Main Street had shut down, and a few of their neighbors' homes had been foreclosed on. You see, the funny thing is that no one's looking to move to a town where the unemployment rate is high and there's no jobs. And so property prices, they kept falling, and more people lost their homes. In a few years, our town will bounce back, his dad continued to say. And so, Chad, he went to work for his dad at the bank, and Chad got married, and he had a few kids, and it it seemed like he was beating the odds until the bank suffered the same loss that so many of their loans did. 
Eventually, the bank itself went under, and Chad felt like he couldn't breathe. Because, you know, he had three kids by now and a mortgage of his own, and the writing was on the wall. What would he say to his wife? What would he tell his kids? It was in those months that Chad started spending more of his time at the bar each night. It was the only handle he had to try not to drown under the weight of it all. Besides, it seemed like the bar was about the only establishment that was still doing okay these days. Most of Main Street by now was boarded up. That plaque with his granddaddy's name was overgrown in that rusty park. It was hard to even find anymore. It was about two years ago when Chad's wife finally left and took the kids with her. She moved back in with her parents a couple hours away. So on a good weekend, Chad might be able to go see his kids. Most of the time, though, is spent trying to pick up odd jobs here and there around town. It's about his third drink most nights that he always asks the same question. How did this happen to me? By the fourth drink, the question normally becomes something like, who changed the rules and ruined my life? Now, at 47 years old, Chad stumbles home each night. He collapses on the couch, unable to get up enough strength to even clean himself up before falling asleep. And Jesus asks us to lay down in the living room next to Chad and look around, look at the clothes and the trash scattered here and there, and asks us, where is a neighbor to the divorced dad in a rural town where the rules of life have changed and hope has dried up? Who is his neighbor? Tamika is 33 years old and was living in Spanish Lake area of North County here in St. Louis. About 10 years ago, Tamika applied with the St. Louis, Louis Housing Authority for a housing voucher to be on a waiting list for a voucher to help her rent a house for the very first time instead of that cockroach-infested apartment that she was raising her two babies in at the time. She was on that wait list for six years. She qualified the whole time, but she was on the wait list for six years before a caseworker called her and told her it was finally her turn. During that six years, she had another beautiful baby girl, which meant that she was now raising her nine-year-old and an eight-year-old and a two-year-old by herself in that little apartment when she got that call. The call that said it was finally her turn. And tears came to her eyes after that call, tears of hope, tears of new beginnings for her and her family. A few months later, she moved her three kids into the first home they had ever lived in. It wasn't anything glamorous, but it was clean, and it was a house with a yard even and a neighborhood, a real neighborhood. 
The next year, Tamika got a job at Mercy Hospital on the janitorial staff. She left by 6.30 each morning to drop off her youngest one at daycare on her way to work. Her two older kids, now nine and ten, two kids in the third and fourth grade, got themselves ready each morning and caught the bus each day by themselves after she left. Of course, they also came home every afternoon, hours before she did. Most nights, it was somewhere between 6 and 6.30 that Tamika would finally get home after picking up her three-year-old from daycare and after working on her feet all day at the hospital, cleaning messes, mopping floors, changing bloody bedsheets. Every night, she came home exhausted, and her kids could see it. They didn't want to bother her about their homework, so they just sort of did as best they could by themselves. Two years after living in that house, new neighbors moved in next door, and it didn't take long for Tamika to be able to recognize that they were bad news. A soft summer breeze often drifted the smell of pot from their backyard into hers. She saw strange cars coming to their house at odd hours of the day and night. One night, about 2 a.m., the sound of a fight outside her window woke her up. There was all kinds of yelling and screaming. It woke her kids up, too. Her now four-year-old started crying. Her 10-year-old looked scared. And her 11-year-old just wanted to yell at them all to shut up. You will do no such thing, Tamika told her son. Thankfully, that kind of night didn't happen every week. Maybe, you know, only once every couple months, a fight outside her window in the middle of the night. But you know, it really only takes once or twice before it would scare any parent. Tamika ended up telling her kids that they were not to play outside after school anymore. You go straight to that bus stop and then go to school. And after school, you come straight home. Do you hear me? Yes, Mama, they said. Well, it was almost a year ago at the age of 32 that Tamika got pregnant with her fourth, and it wasn't long after that that a global pandemic hit, and the schools that all three of Tamika's kids were now attending went virtual. In fact, they haven't been back in the classroom once since then. For most of the semester last spring, Tamika tried to keep going to work herself, but then came that horrible day last May. Things had escalated with the neighbors. Fights were now sometimes happening in broad daylight. And on that day in May, gunshots went off in the street in front of her house. I just can't do this, Tamika told herself. We've got to get out of here. And so she called her landlord and she told him what was going on. I'm sorry, he said, but I'm not the police there really isn't anything I can do. And, well, you have signed a lease, and I have a mortgage to pay on that house. She called her caseworker. I, I'm so sorry to hear that, Tamika, but we have a contract, and unless the landlord breaks his end of the contract, we're stuck until that lease of yours runs out. So she started waiting for that lease of hers to run out. For that day to come, March 
2021, when her lease would finally be up and she could move out. She started waiting, only it happened again last fall. More gunshots, and this time a bullet hit her house. She was terrified and finally moved her and her now four kids in with her sister and their kids in a two-bedroom, one-bath house. Tamika has been calling around different landlords, but there's just not much out there right now. You see, there's actually a real housing shortage here in St. Louis. She finally got hold of one, and he asked her, so why are you looking to move at this time? Well, I just want a quiet place where it's safe enough for my kids to be able to go outside and play. So she spends 25 of her hard-earned dollars to apply for the new house, and the report comes back in, and there's a phone call. I'm sorry, ma'am, but it looks like you don't meet our minimum qualifications, the landlord tells her. After she hangs up, Tamika sits down on her sister's crowded couch and just weeps. And Jesus... He asks us to sit down on that couch with her and look around. And then he asks, who is a neighbor to that desperate mom for a safe home for her four kids in North St. Louis? Where's Tamika's neighbor? Mark is 17 years old and lives in Melville in South County. He's grown up in a church-going family that everyone really admires. His dad coached his soccer team. His mom is on his little sister's PTA. Three years ago when Mark went to summer camp with his church's youth group, something important happened. It was then that he felt God's calling to him into full-time ministry. He had no idea what that would mean or how that would look, but it was on that night that he prayed with a full heart and tears in his eyes, I am yours, Lord. Do with my life whatever pleases you. That was three years ago. About two years ago, Mark decided that maybe he should get some friends together to pray for his school and his classmates. So they did that every week. About 10 to 15 kids from different churches gathered in one of their basements and they told stories and they laughed together and then they prayed together for their school and their classmates. Most of them were there because Mark had invited them. About one year ago, something unexpected happened in Mark's life. Something he didn't know how to explain, but something that felt like an earthquake in him, and it terrified him. Out of nowhere, a guy on his soccer team kissed him on the cheek, and his body flushed with emotion. You see, for at least two years before that, Mark had told himself that he was just a a little confused. Of course, I'm not gay, Mark would tell himself. That's not what God wants for my life. Everyone knows that, and God has called me to be a pastor. Everyone knows that, too. But with one small kiss, 
all that self-talk fell apart. And he was so angry. He was angry at his friend for thinking that he, he would want that. And he was even more angry at himself because the truth was he did want that. That was about a year ago. And so for 12 months now, Mark has been spiraling he prays for God to take these feelings away. He, he wants to be faithful to what God has asked of him. But no matter how hard he tries and how much he prays, he can't seem to change. And it feels like his soul is being ripped in two. I'm a fraud of a Christian, he tells himself. I hate, I hate this part of me. I just hate it. He says with tears on his eyes, sitting on the side of his bed with the Bible on the nightstand next to him. Jesus asks us to sit there in the room with him and look around and ask ourselves, who is the neighbor to that gay Christian teenager that's learning to hate himself when I have called him into ministry? Where's Mark's neighbor? It's a different sort of question than what the lawyer in the gospel reading asked, isn't it? The lawyer wanted to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells us a story to help us change the question. The question isn't who is our neighbor as we're walking down this road of life, scanning the horizon, because we are looking from the wrong perspective. You can't see so clearly up here when our days are busy and our life is full. The only way to see things clearly is to get down in the ditch where the man is laying broken and bleeding and desperate. Get down there on the ground with him. Sit there in Chad's living room with him. Sit next to Tamika on her sister's crowded couch. Take a look around Mark's bedroom there in Melville. If you want to know who the neighbors are, then go find a ditch. Get down in it and start looking around from there. It's the only way that we start to see a bit more clearly. And then, let what you find there begin to guide you. Because when you find some neighbors down there, you'll also find your way to eternal life. Amen.